Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of the Frank and Phyllis Leadership Podcast. Uh, today, I am joined by my good friend, uh, Severin Sorensen, all the way from the United States of America. You know me, uh, the podcast reaches far and wide. Uh, and I was reflecting on this this morning as I was uh, as I was getting myself ready. And Sev, I'm not sure if you know this, but you were the first person that kind of introduced me to podcasts. And I was the, uh, or my first podcast experience was a guest on your show. And just before we got on, we were just talking about how you've got your anniversary coming up. So I'd love for you to share the value that you've had and gain from running a podcast and a little bit more about your podcast. Sure. Oh, well, thanks for that invitation. So, podcast. So the name of the podcast is the Arte Coach Podcast, A-R-E-T-E Coach Podcast. And we have a website affiliated with it as well as artecoach.io. The podcast started off with a musing that I had. Uh, my mother was aging. Um, my grandparents had aged uh, prior, and we recorded some interviews with them prior to their passing that are very precious to us. My uh, wife's father was aging, uh, approaching uh, one of the, the Highline birthdays, and I thought, you know, we really ought to capture the history when we can. So I paid a professional videographer to come in and ask all these questions. He's somebody who had done this a lot of time before for the million dollar rand table in the insurance industry. It was very professional. It was great. And we gave it away kind of as a Christmas present to everybody for that year. And I thought about that and I said, you know, conversations are rich. They're meaningful. They're powerful. I think there are a lot of great coaches out there and I'd like to capture their stories. So the idea uh, for this, uh, the first podcast was uh, uh, there was a, a dear friend of mine that uh, was in the UK and uh, he and I, in fact, we're in the same group, uh, warrior monks and, and do things together. But uh, it was really neat to uh, think about him and what he was doing and just podcast in general. And I asked him if he if he'd like to be our first guest in terms of doing all these podcasts. And so what's kind of interesting is that we recorded it. And when you do podcasts, it's it's really a long-term type of adventure. It's not a, a short-time thing. And I think you really have to think for what you're going to do. So we decided we would have a bunch of them recorded and in the can. And then what happened is, in this case, that he actually passed away before we got it out. And you know, that was a, a sad moment. And I was, you know, such, such a, uh, a dear friend, so many precious memories and so on. But I recall thinking right after I heard that he passed away, I thought, oh, I have all these interviews of him. I really need to get that out there. And so for uh, Richard Bosworth uh, was his name. He had a, a group called the What If Forums. I went ahead and pulled all this um, material together and I sent it to his family, and I made it accessible and available uh, for us. And it was a fascinating discovery, and I loved it. I get so much energy talking to great people. I, I get the gift. I mean, I'm asking a few questions, but but I learned so much from him. He was so sage, and you know, his passing has left a real hole in me because he was a dear friend, and I, I really felt, uh, like I do with you, I feel a kindred spirit in terms of, intellectually talking about 
topics that matter, thinking widely about things, and you're just a great person. But what was great is we've got his story, and we shared his story as our first podcast, and we've we have now released on Monday. We did our 48th episode. Uh, we go out every Monday. We're coming up on our at the end of the month. We'll be it to our anniversary. We do take one month off in the month of August uh, as a break. Uh, that kind of kills your podcast subscription, by the way. When you do that, I've learned next time maybe we'll get a bunch of serial podcasts ready and and keep them going. But it's been a real adventure, and we've gone from no listeners to a dozen listeners to 30, 40. And, and right now we have about uh, 12,000 listeners a month uh, that listen to the podcast. So I'm, I'm pretty surprised actually, you know, but maybe, you know, I don't think it's anything I say. Maybe it's the great guests and stuff we have on like yourself. Uh, thank you. Uh, and, and it's quite funny because there's uh, I'm pr- pretty much like you. I think for me, the gift has been just, it's been great just catching up with people a, that I've not spoken to for a long time. Uh, B, just chewing the fat and just talking through uh, ideas, thoughts, processes. Uh, but kind of really getting to know people from a from a different perspective. And, you know, part of my heart sang when you said Richard's, Richard's name because um, whilst we didn't meet until, um, you know, a little bit after his, uh, his passing... Um, both of you and I have, uh, you know, a, a lot of time and respect for for him. I, I was, we were working. I was trying to help him um, push the what if concept, uh, and this aspect of kind of online, remote coaching and mastermind groups. And this was pre-COVID, um, and we were we were really trying to gather some momentum. And it was coincided with me moving over to kind of uh, kind of New Zealand, and then. It was almost a shame that he he passed before he kind of got the realization of of these great ideas that he'd actually been trying to that he'd already been doing, but was trying to get out to the masses. All of a sudden, a global pandemic, everybody was doing what he was saying and advocating for probably five years previously. Um, what if if he was still alive now? What do you think he would be saying as to what had happened over the last couple of years? Oh, Richard was a gift. He was, uh, he would be thinking about the next thing. He was doing, uh, it was interesting in, in his podcast, he related his history. He had a management consulting practice in South Africa, was going really well. And then he heard about this guy out in America who was coaching. He goes, I don't know why I got to go here. And he, and he went to hear him talk. And it changed his life. And he learned about telecoaching. He learned about the classes. He learned about asking great questions. And he decided to do that. And so he was actually uh, an early one by necessity. You know that there's a quote from Plato that, um, that the, the mother of invention is necessity. And what happened is, um, sadly, he got cancer when he was in South Africa. And so he wanted to go to England where the treatment would be better. And he didn't want to lose his clients and his clients said, well, well, we can do things over the phone. We, we know you, we want to work with you. And so he was one of these early kind of international teleclass, telecoach type coaches. And then gradually he's been leaning into it. He was an early adopter of Zoom. He was an early adopter of, of doing these little three, you know, three minute video shorts and so on. And so he was just a lovely, thoughtful, engaging, hard questioner 
uh, chief tormentor type of a coach, uh, one that I really would enjoy. Um, and I, I think that's probably why uh, you and me get on so well together and both of us got on well with him because there is this aspect of kindred spirits. Um, now, we're both in a group called Warrior Monks, uh, which is, I suppose, uh, in some ways, a another mastermind group, uh, peer group. Uh, I'd love for you to share, because I know that you run uh, a number of these groups, what is it about the aspects of coming together with a group of people that you see such a gift in, in both taking from as a member, but also facilitating and leading? Uh, you could go a lot of places with that. Let's just say that there's power in peers. And early on as an entrepreneur and then later as a coach, I learned the value in getting together. You know, it is a fool who thinks they have to step in every pothole to know not to have to step in that pothole. Uh, ben Franklin put it this way. He said, um, experience is a dear teacher and fools will learn by no other. And what I take from that quote is, you know, if you're the type that has to step in every pothole because you don't believe others, that you're going to have a lot of hard learning. But what these peer groups do is you'll have a, a really tough issue. All right, so here's a tough issue today, inflation. All right, it's a current issue. You could go into your peers and say, what do you think of this inflation? What about pricing power? How would I do it? How have you done it? And with peers really working on an issue, see all sides of issues that are different than just one mind. And I think it's the collaborative, that, that collective that, and then you might hear an idea that sets on fire another idea, and it's an iterative process, almost like an and exercise. And I think that's one of the great values of, of having peers. I started as an entrepreneur. I kind of finished. I couldn't learn anymore, if you will, just reading books or going to free coffee and donuts. And if somebody said, you know, you really ought to pay for this coaching. I'm like, oh, coaching, what is it? So I researched and I found a group and I found a, a coach and a peer group. And it really made a difference for me in my life. I'd become a real advocate. Although I have to say, initially, I thought, oh, you know, what will they learn? You know, they're not like me. And oh boy, was I, I wrong. There's, there's so much one can learn. And I think peer attraction, peer groups, peer, and you have to have a good group. You can have a bad group. I, I initially got into a group that wasn't strong. I liked the model, but I didn't get along with the coach. And, and I felt sucked of my energy, if you will, zapped of my energy going to the meeting. But later on, they said, well, you know, you can get another group. I go, oh, I can. And I met an amazing coach and amazing peers, and it really clicked for me and was a driver for my business. And so later on when they asked, would you like to coach others? I was like, oh, I'm all in. Let's go do that. <laughs> um, Sev, I know that you are somebody that is an eternal learner. In fact, I'm in awe of your articulation and remembering of, uh, of quotes and books uh, and I know sometimes when we're on a call together, you're kind of present, but a little bit like me, you're kind of doing research on the side and kind of multitasking. Um, is there two or three specific threads of where you get your information? Um, I'd love to just know uh, what inspires you and, you know, the little rabbit holes of, of places that you kind of go down. So there's a quote uh, that I actually I gave a presentation to CEO group uh, earlier today. There is a quote that uh, Einstein had. He said, you know, I really wasn't that much smarter or cleverer than other people. I was only deeply, deeply curious. And I think curiosity 
is one of those things where you're just like, I wonder how that works. I wonder if I could fix that. I wonder if I could find that. I wonder if I could find somebody who's done this on YouTube. I wonder what that, in other words, it's just wonderment and a desire to learn and look. And so I do have sources where I go. I do think it's important that you get good knowledge and not just average knowledge. So I, I'm always vetting the knowledge, if you will, or what are the sources. It's almost like you go onto Amazon or a website. You can see the stars of how many referrals. I will really, mm-hmm. I, I give a lot of people a break. Okay, I'll look at that. But then I have a real good factual basis, like what have I heard before, what have I read, and I'm trying to make sure I'm reading broadly. The other thing is, think broadly, Outside of my subject matter, I read tons. Like I like to, I've subscribed before to the MIT Technology Review. Well, I'm not a technologist, but their articles are so far out, it causes me to think far out. And then mm. I make associations like, oh, what if this? What if that? And and so it can be really helpful. And I definitely, I have a very active Audible with well over 100 books on it. I um, just, I devour knowledge, if you will as a Mm -hmm. way of kind of making uh, relationships and and keeping myself alive. So one of our peers, uh, Ozzy Gantang, has this uh, phrase. He said, first, you're you're either green and growing or ripe and rotten or or, um, composting and then getting ready to be green and growing again. I'd rather be green and growing and and just constantly learning. And, you know, age is uh, just a thing. I, I think people can be green right to their last moment. Uh, so this aspect of curiosity and wonderment, um, can you remember your earliest memory of when you realized that you, you know, that was kind of almost part of your DNA, uh, it was your values, and that might maybe that the, the way you think was maybe slightly different to others? <laughs> well, the learning that I was thinking differently from others probably didn't come till later when I realized the world didn't think the way I thought. But the earliest time, I've always been an achiever. I've always had goals. Uh, my first goal was not to be a coach. My first goal was to be a, a professional American baseball player. And I can remember in my youth researching uh, athletes. And there was an athlete in, in American baseball, there's an award called the Cy Young Award. It's for the best pitcher. And I, I happened to be a, a pitcher in Little Leagues at the time. And I remember that there was a Cy Young Award winner. He used to play for the Pittsburgh Pirates. He went to the university in the area where I was at. And I wrote him a letter. I think I was 13 or 14 telling him I planned to come and play ball for him at the university. I wanted to be a pro baseball player. What did I need to learn or grow to do so that I would be ready? And what was so interesting, he didn't throw the letter away. He wrote me a letter back and he sent uh, material, the training guide. Well, then suddenly I went out and bought an alarm clock and I was up early in the morning running sprints and doing all the exercises to kind of to grow. And so I really cued into mentors really early and trying mm-hmm. to find people and just ask great questions. And I actually got asked that when I was uh, 21. I had somebody come in my life that was uh, very timely. And he said, I sense that you're going to go places and I'll help you if I can help you. But my advice to you is this. Find the best people you can reach out to. Invite to take the lunch or to breakfast. Ask them about what they learned, how they got to where they are, and what might be of assistance to you now. And then book that knowledge and then go find another one. I just keep learning and growing and i've done that my whole life so 
at 13, that's a huge level of uh, insight and maturity. Did it just, was it natural to you or was there an inspiration that came behind it? I don't know. Uh, Guy Ross is a podcast. He asked this question. Uh, was it luck or was it skill? And I'm always, uh, I'm, I think I was lucky to have my parents. I okay. was lucky to be in a place of curiosity. Uh, I was lucky to have things, but I, but I also wanted things. I was organizing in a very early state uh, and seeing opportunities. So when I was four and five, I lived in Anaheim, uh, California. We had an avocado tree. And I noticed the avocados would fall on the ground and I had to pick them up. Well, I learned that people would buy them. So I stood on the corner of our house on the street and I would sell them for a nickel and 10 cents each to people who would pass by. And so I learned, I, I really enjoyed earning money. And then later on, I was an 11 year old up in Utah and we had moved and the snow fell. And I didn't like doing snow, but I knew I could earn money with it. So I'd walk around and I'd knock on all the doors and I'd get the contract to sell this, um, to shovel snow. But I'd have all my elementary school friends shovel the snow. And then yeah. I learned the entrepreneur's lesson. One for you, one for you, oh, the rest for me. One for you, one for you, the rest for me. And I learned right away I loved organizing others to work almost in a Tom Sawyer way. And so mm -hmm. that started really early for me. And so I've always been trying to figure out how could I organize that, how could I do that. It's just, you know, who I am. So... I'm wired that way, but I've, I've been really blessed to have the mentors and others who have helped me along the way. Um, so I'm I'm curious. Uh, what are you currently curious, and what are you currently wondering about? Oh, that's a great question. What am I curious about? A curiosity. This is going to sound weird. Um, a curiosity I've had is, what will life be like when I'm 90? Now, I know that's like many years. That's uh, I, I just had my 59th birthday. But I've had this for a while. I had it in my 40s. Like, what will life be like? What will I want to do? What Where, where would I want to live? Who would I want to be? It even went in, you know, I had a negative first uh, marriage experience and uh, an, a, a rough divorce and thinking about who did I want to marry in the future, I literally thought, what do I want my life to be when I'm 90? And I thought, well, I'm going to probably want to play cards together, have fun conversation together. We want to joke together, read books, have similar. I, I actually thought of those things. And so I'm always kind of thinking way out, if you will, a little bit more like, is that practical? That's like so far. I said, but the things we do now set up the future later. Because mm -hmm. by thinking that, I'm like, well, what, what kind of a career will we want? Well, the best career I can think for an 80 or 90-year-old is to be a CEO coach. Because you've got all this gold. And I'm like, well, how would I create that career? How could I have intention? And so I've kind of laid things out in a very long-term planning that my career kind of takes me on the path I'm looking at as this mountain. Every day I get a little bit closer. So that's definitely a really long-term goal. But so my curiosities for that today is, my curiosity is, what is the world we're heading into? Will inflation outstrip our capacity to grow? Will the technology that's making our lives easier actually frustrate us? Will we be able to live responsibly on this globe? Like, for example, you know, I observed lots of different things. It was a curiosity to me, to me this week when it was reported in the U.S. press 
that the Russians sent off an anti-satellite missile to do a test up into the atmosphere, and that uh, astronauts on the space station had to hunker down and get ready for something to hit, some debris or something that might come by. Now, they weren't intentionally trying to hit him, but it's just a lot of shrapnel and debris and so on. Mm-hmm. And it caused me to think, hmm, in a wartime, that's likely an activity many would do. We might become blind to the high, you know, Sun Tzu said, he who, he who controls the high ground controls the world. But if the high ground is the satellites looking down, if we're not able to look down, you know, what would that do? Well, communications might go out, internet out, and it just caused me to wonder, well, how resilient is my my industry if I don't have one of these things? So my mind is really way out there thinking of stuff that shouldn't happen, but might. And if it does, well, I'm always prepared. <laughs> do, you, do you know what, Sam? It's really funny because last night me and my wife were talking about, um, okay, so... Uh, if we were set up and there was some level of a co- apocalypse, you know, and, you know, uh, power went, water went, you know, what what have we not got that we would need to get to the stage of base level survival? You know, we've got a, we've got our own water filtration system. You know, I said, well, we've got a big chest freezer, but there's no point because we'd have no power and a generator will only last a certain number of days. OK, cool. So do we need to make sure that we've got seeds and you know shovels to make sure that we can be fertile in the land um it's so I, I, you know with somebody that is so curious I, I i'm interested where and what you see with the future with this whole global pandemic um you know both from a from a medical perspective from a social perspective uh, I, i'd love your thoughts on where and what you're seeing all right. Well, first off, it's bad. I'm the master of the understatement. It's it's been hard on the globe. It's been hard on people. It's it's um, robbed years of life on most people. I think they said the average age expectancy of life has been diminished uh, because of this and the impact on our bodies, the resist our resilience and resistance. But as I look at it, they, clearly there's a health impact. I'm not a health expert. I'll leave them to do that. But let's. Let's um, celebrate the words of some wise individuals. Like the former uh, FDA chief here in the U.S. had indicated that from the data, it appears the U.S. will be exiting at least the pandemic stage of this. So we'll still have COVID. There'll probably still be a booster. We'll still do things, but we're learning to adapt to it. So our economy will continue to go. And that for many developed nations, for the vaccinated populations, this will be the case. It will just impact them less and less. Non-vaccinated, their choices will uh, impact them in different ways. And I do think some of the data shows everybody's going to get it at some point because it's just there's just enough wood for it to burn. But uh, there'll be other things. I think the bigger the learning for me out of this is what a miracle and um, an appreciation of science it was that in such a short amount of time they could map this, they could put trials together, accelerate trials, and come up with a vaccine that could be helpful. And um, that type of technology is going to be more and more present. Uh, I like to read futurist books. One of the books I read um, years ago was that in the future, we will solve a lot of the safety things. We'll have fewer accidents of certain things that would limit life. But So as we get older and older, you know, being healthy and, and uh, viruses, other things like that are going to, disease are going to be some of the challenges we face. So I'm glad AI is focusing uh, now on disease discovery and medicine discovery and uh, prevention discovery on, on what can we do to solve some of these things. So for me, I think that's helpful. 
Um, you know, lots of other places you could go with the discussion, but I'll wrap that piece up there. What's curious about what I've just said to you? Uh, oh, okay, you're flipping it back. You're such a coach. Um, <laughs> I think there's there's a, there's a couple of things that I've often wondered. I've always felt that uh, there's situations and events and discussions and decisions that are made that we'll never know about. Um, there's this, you know, uh, and I kind of liken it to the fact that when you're when you're in the boardroom, there's conversations that happen in the boardroom, and then uh, that stays there, and then other stakeholders have never got any idea whether it be employees or customers. So I then look at it and go, right, if I t- if I apply the same thought process and patterns to uh, governments and go, right, okay, there's stuff that they're talking about now. You know, in you know, in the in the war room aspect or the war gaming perspective, uh, that we're just never going to be aware of. And I, I, for me, I I hear information, and then I'll just go, okay. Um, there's three sides to every story. There's your side. There's my side. The, the, there's the truth. So I'm I'm always trying to think, okay, what else potentially is being discussed or is going on um, that. They either don't want us to know, or um, they don't even know how to kind of solve or develop themselves. Uh, that yeah. that curiosity just sometimes sometimes takes me down rabbit holes and uh, and paths, um, which means that I go off on real tangents. Um, but similar to you, that that constant wonderment and curiosity uh, actually just keeps keeps me alive, um, and, and and in some ways. The, the aspect of that higher level of thinking um, just means that I, I suppose in some ways that's that's become my bit of my differentiator in kind yeah. of questioning the questions, as it were. Well, I think it's important to question the questions. Let me go back to something you said in the thread. And that is I question what it is that I see. I think it's absolutely critical that we be observant, that we know where our news is coming from, but that we also look further out. So years ago, I was fortunate to work in the first Bush White House, uh, POTUS 41. And I was a special assistant to the president. Man, I was a political appointee, but I was way, way down. I was in the bowels of, of the lowest of the low who could say that they were there. Okay, so I'm not trying to say I was anybody important. My boss was unable to go to a meeting that was in the West Wing that was was an important meeting where all the secretaries were there, cabinet-level officials and so on. And it was a meeting to coordinate what was called intergovernmental affairs. When I got there, I was told, by the way, don't say anything, take good notes, sit on the back wall, and then come here and brief me on what you said. Don't don't interrupt the meeting. Uh, So I learned a good lesson of leadership there, by the way, as well. So... I'm at the meeting, and I am stunned. They pass out at the time a 52-week news calendar of the future of news for 52 weeks in America with four slip weeks, where there were four weeks, one per quarter, where the news might not be able to be promoted and intentionally directed. Current events would take place, and those slip weeks would go. I was stunned. I saw there every theme that we would do, uh, the entire calendar mapped out. And, of course, one of my jobs, um, in addition to my official job, the unofficial job was advance team for certain activities, some of them actually on that calendar. So what was stunning to me is that we would work on this in six weeks, six months, or whatever. News would pop out. The press would eat it up like, this just happened. I'm like, 
yeah, we worked on that six months ago. And, and like we knew exactly um, when these things would come out. Now, we didn't know in some cases how they would uh, be taken. We would do all we could to kind of control that. But that caused me to take a completely different view of the news. And that is uh, from that point, we were doing all we could to put the news out, fit for consumption, that met the message requirements we had. And the slip weeks were just for things we couldn't count on, and then we would react and so on. But thinking that there are some people looking so far out in advance, preparing for these things that other people think are accidental, causes me to think that the news is not the news. The news might be the snooze, the things that they want you to think or forget about. Now, I'm not a conspiratorialist, um, but I do like a good novel. Okay, and I so I'm always thinking, where's my news coming from? What am I listening to? And why are they saying that? So, for example, if you go back to the very last crisis, the Great Recession, um, Bernanke was the the Fed uh, chairman at the time. They would come out and tell you everything was all right on Friday. And then on the weekend, they would completely take another company over, do this and that, crazy economic things. And you're like, what in the heck happened? And yet they told us to be comfortable. And so there's a difference between a public official telling you everything will be all right, we've got this under control, and then what's really happening behind the scenes as they're trying to, and I think in most cases for the public good, do things that are right and important. Sometimes, you know, they're doing other things, but let's just assume that, and given the benefit that people went into service to do good things. Wow. So let me just confirm what you've just said, that the majority of the news has been planned out and manufactured so that they are controlling the narrative in which we are reading and listening to. Yes. Okay. Uh, that's pretty that that happens when you have a stability of events now exogenous events could occur wars could break out disease that changes the narrative but to the degree when all things being normal we had 52 weeks of news ready to send out that met the agenda and the standard and the weeks and the times of where we wanted to do things wow it just uh, I, I'm I'm sitting here just thinking to myself. There was a, an old computer game called Lemmings. I don't know if you remember it. Uh, these little green things, uh, and basically it was like you know I suppose uh, the sheep following the herd, uh, and one person goes a particular way and everybody else follows. Um, it just it somehow feels like that. Uh, wow. Okay. Uh, I'm just absorbing. I'm just. I'm just absorbing what you've said. Well, just just think about. You need to look at the news. You need to look at it from multiple areas. Okay, let's take this one as a question. When did you first believe, hear, or think that this COVID issue that was in in China was at all going to impact you, uh, where you were in uh, New Zealand? Probably within about three or four days of of hearing the news. And when was that? What was the date? So that was probably uh, early January. Okay. And early January is when I also first heard of it. But when I asked most people, particularly here in the U.S., they're insulated. Their life is at the ball field. It's what happens at the grocery store. They're not looking ahead. It didn't happen here for most people in America until the 15th of March. And yep. yet the signals were there. 
but you had to know what to look for, and it mm-hmm. wasn't being broadcast. The public thing is, there are no problems. We got this under control. That's over there. It's not here. We're the mighty, mighty. You know, muscles are strong. Disease can't enter our border. All right. Yeah. Meanwhile, I'm my curious mind. I'm like looking at where can I? I'm going to YouTube. I'm looking at sources. I'm looking at things. Who's quoting who? I'm trying to um, look at uh, guidance. Like I'm looking at Twitter feeds. Who was quoting who, and where did that come from? Where what's their background? What they know? And quickly, I came up with about twenty different people who seemed to know something based on their background. That then became my news source to help guide me. So, on the twenty fifth of January is the first time I published the Johns Hopkins calendar to my Twitter feed. There were about two thousand deaths at that time reported in China. Nothing else here. Now, what's interesting? We think about the news and snooze. In the time period that followed, it has been reported that antibodies were here in the U.S. in Red Cross blood samples in December of 1999. This is before the China one. And it was also reported in the press that in Spain that uh, evidence of COVID was in the sewer system in September of 1999. Okay. So I think this, do you mean Do you mean 2019? Uh, 20, 2019, excuse me, yes. 2019. All right. In both instances. So what's interesting is the evidence of an epicenter being, yes, right there, clearly something. But it's clear there was something nobody had a a great understanding about happening globally. But we just kind of think that it's there. Only now, later, like, oh, well, maybe it was uh, other places. And so when we start looking, I just think we have to look at the news, look at what's going on, and then make a rational assessment. Could it impact me here? How are we doing? So I can recall being out there, getting prepared. And for me, having more information calms me as opposed to get me lathered up into a storm. So I like to be more curious. Um, how far will you go to get the information that's going to calm you? How far? You mean like an investment of time? Or yeah. am I going to become an investigative I'm not going to become an investigative reporter. Okay. But in my, my search of time, I am curious and I will try to scan and find sources. And the trouble is there's so many different sources. You always have to ask, why are they reporting it? What's in it for them? And mm-hmm. there are folks who would love to, you know, disaggregate economies, folks that would love to disrupt economies. And, and so I think that's what's made this whole news cycle so important. There's a uh, scientist named uh, Max Tegbark. He's at MIT, who's developed an app to go in and look at all news sources to determine their level by their language, where they are on a pattern of uh, bias from the right or the left or the center. And I find it to be really useful to look at some of their work. They're using AI for it, and that can help you understand where your news is coming from. And mind you, I will watch CNN and I will watch Fox News and I will read the Financial Times and I will do the New York Times and I will go and look at different sources, taking as a grain of salt that all of them have a point of view. What is it that can be learned? What can I um, operate with? So I was going to ask you this, but you you, you did me a nice uh, segue in. Uh, this aspect then of AI, I'd love to know how and what you're using AI for within your day-to-day work and and practice, Uh, and also some examples of what you've seen, some of your clients, but also where you think it's going to go. Because I I feel that AI is is big, untapped, uh, so I'd love to get your input on this. Okay. So 
I view AI as there is machine learning, there is process learning, and then there is AI where the computer is smart enough to actually make all the inference and things itself. All right, so we have, I've been involved in business process learning for some time, getting machine, like for example, in video learning, pattern detection, and so on. So that's not what I would call AI. For AI today, there's two ways that I'm uh, presently involved doing it. One would be a tool like, say, with IBM Watson, where we take a large database of big data, we drop it into the tool, the tool gives us inference. So I'll give you an example um, with hiring data. There was a company, I won't mention the company name, but uh, one of my colleagues had access uh, for the company. And the question was, what could we learn from AI and big data to tell us about our business? The company has 6,000 employees. So they put time and attendance. They put um, accident data, productivity data, um, days off. They put um, what are the questions all the employees asked before they came into, you know, they got their job. They looked at the profitability of the different kiosks, whatever. And then they had an attitude survey for the employees. They put all that into a master worksheet and dropped it into the system. Now at Cambridge, when I was there studying economics doing my graduate work, I might have an assignment would take me six months to do. And I could wrestle with this pig of a research database and run the analysis that we intuitively knew something about how the data moved, but it would take me six months. This data set put in was analyzed in 18 seconds. Now think about that. Six months to 18 seconds. Oh, and by the way, it did better than we did. Didn't have any mathematical errors. It ran all equations by all equations, all combinations by all combinations. And they gave a sorted list saying, these are the different um, statistical relationships that exist. Are these stochastic noise? Is there something real here? What should we explore further? So there was still a man in the middle to the degree that once the analysis came, you had to look at it. But that was some really powerful um, data. By the way, one of the things the data showed, kind of a crazy thing, you're like, employees who walk faster get more done. You're like, well, like, duh, of course they do. But actually we showed in the data that a, an individual's motor skills, their ability to do routine activity repeatedly faster, produced more work. Same way somebody who, say, uh, you know, types 135 words a minute faster than somebody who's just 35 words a minute. But we actually showed it statistically through the data, so now we could actually measure it, and we could measure the gait of somebody in the hiring process on what was their pace, how fast did they go from point A to point B. Crazy, huh? So that's an example of AI. Another area that we're using it uh, in my search practice is we can use AI right now. If we spot a pattern, we can use AI to drop, for example, I can find an ideal candidate and maybe I can find them on LinkedIn. So I find an ideal candidate on LinkedIn and I copy the string that shows their particular profile on LinkedIn and then I drop it into an AI widget. And then that widget will go out to the entire metaverse and look for all other candidates that have similar um, structures as this particular one. And so that's the way it's kind of helping us in that area. I'm also using, uh, a, a, I guess, a third one I've forgotten about. I'm using AI to help with coaching conversations. So I use Zoom, and there's a tool I can use with Zoom that will basically allow me to, it rec Zoom will record the conversation, but immediately after it's recorded, the entire conversation is taken to text. And then using the text in the video, a workbook of the entire conversation is made on 
all the key points, all the driving factors, the questions that were asked, and, and I could even score it by the level of the language that was discussed. Is it run, spot, run? Elementary language was a higher level. If there were any keywords used, I can pull those out and I can go right to that point. So we're using AI to help inform the conversation. I hope that we'll be able to use this to actually teach coaches how to coach better because we can go back and create coaching playbooks. Uh, right now, it's the technology that's being used in the sales area that we're kind of exploring in the coaching. So those are a couple that we're doing. It's just like you, you, you start going down this conversation and it's just like you can't end up not having your mind blown as about what the what the potential opportunities are. And I, and I, uh, I see that there's a big play and a big opportunity for those people that can see and leverage the so I think the technology is there in a lot of the cases it's taking the technology it's then taking the uh, the curiosity and the wonderment and then finding uh, a way or somebody that can just basically link link those two together Um, and I think there's a big opportunity that if you're one of those people that uh, is able to to connect to listen and and connect them together, uh, you're gonna be very successful in this next period of uh, of um, business development. Um, so if you're listening and you're one of those people, I'd love to have a conversation with you. Uh, I think I know some of the technology. I've got definitely the wonderment, but I'm searching for somebody that can uh, plug the gaps for me. Um, Sev, I just wanna, because uh, you've got an extensive career in um, recruitment, um, in a, in a time when uh, job roles and job types are changing, um, the demographic of uh, uh, people's needs uh, are changing, and I think um, I think the whole kind of pandemic has accelerated a lot of the work from home. Uh, pick the hours you want to choose, etc. I'd love to get some of your thoughts and insights on what you're seeing uh, from recruitment in general, but also how do you recruit people um, in this current period? Well, those are two massive questions. So the first thought that came to my mind is we're no longer looking for workaholics. The question I used to ask is how many hours would you work and what do you do normally? There's a, um, there's a work out there called DeepMind and it's uh, talking about um, the value. And and the research is, and I'm quoting others here, the research is showing that it's difficult for a human being to apply more than six hours in a stint of great, meaningful work. And then outside of that, they'll have to go do other stuff because of the ability. So I think the issue is I want to find people who have the ability to cognitively do great work and have the discipline to use that time to do it well and then can have a great life as well. Some people don't have a great life because they are not disciplined with their time, and so it stretches from their best time to other time. So one of my coaching issues is I really encourage people to determine when their on time is, when you're truly lucid, and then to use that time, safeguard that time. Like for me, my best time is between 5.30 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. Those five hours, I am absolutely on. If you are hiring me to be a coach, that's the time you want your session. I frequently won't book something at that time because that's my time to write. That's my time to think. That's the time when I'm negotiating and doing the highest uh, caliber work. And at the other times, I'm just kind of mustering through to get things done. So, so that's 
uh, one area where I kind of go with um, this issue. Then in terms of recruiting, just a word on that today. It's harder today than it's been in the past. And part of it is this issue. You've, you've heard of the great resignation. I hate those words. I, I, I think that casts it. It's really not resigning. It's turning to what you want to do. It is totally explainable that, and from the data, if you look at psychological research and others, that after post-traumatic stress syndrome, after the crisis, after the pandemic, after the Great Recession, after the recession, that people who had to hunker down were greatly impacted by it, choose, I don't want to live this way again. I want to figure out what's not working for me. I want to turn to that. And we have a lot of people now that are deciding they want to do like you and me. So... You're, you chose to live where you want and to figure out how to make a living there. So you're in New Zealand. Last month, um, I was in Hawaii, and I was there for a couple of weeks. Business did not suffer while I was there. I had a fabulous time. My wife and I went to see the grandkids and so on. That's great. The reality is I know more and more people that are having lives on multiple continents. I, I know uh, people like they have a home in Park City, Utah for three months a year to enjoy skiing. They have a home in Florida to enjoy the tax basis for Florida of no income tax for the state. They might have a home in Spain or Portugal where they go for three months, and then they'll have three months variable where they'll rent an Airbnb, said they go to Australia for three months. And this is their life. They are these digital nomads where they've got all of their material together. And on Reddit, you can find about there's lots of groups like this, but they're growing and growing. People who have the capability will do it. So the strong do what they can, the weak suffer what they must. If you're a knowledge worker and have the ability to do that, life can be really good for you. But it's hard for those who haven't gained those skills. So in terms of finding people, my hard part today is getting people who want to work and getting them to work and the requirements, like just this um, yesterday. I have a position that would be great. It's a it's a VP of HR down in the Irvine, California. So it's so it's Orange County, Southern Cal, beautiful area uh, all year long. I have somebody that we want to uh, potentially hire, and I talked to them, and they said, "Oh, that's Irvine, beautiful area, but I don't live there anymore. I'm in Denver, Colorado now. So un- unless you can let me live here and then come in once in a while, kind of parachute in, y- your job's not going to work for me." I'm like, "What?" And, and I'm finding this happening more and more mm-hmm. to the talent pool that people want to live. Like, look, if somebody said to me, you have to live in California, I'm not living there. Yeah, I was born there. I'm not living there now. I'm happy to visit. I'm happy to go do a trip. I'll work remotely. But I want to live where I have peace. I want to live where my quality of life is. I want to live when our call is over. I'm off to dinner. I'm enjoying life, not stuck in traffic somewhere. And I can do that. Because being a knowledge worker, I have the ability to do that. And I think people who can will. Now, interesting data point. There was a study that was done that said 49% of all jobs can be done remotely. Trouble is 49% of people can't work remotely. It's the people management issue. So how's that? I'll send it back to you. Uh, well, so is it, is it the people? So pick it up on that then. How much of that is the people management and how much of it is the self-discipline to manage self? Well, there's a lot in what you just said. 
If a person formerly prior to COVID was easy to manage in the workplace with self-discipline, self-regulated, they got their work done, they're working from home quite nice now. But if they were hard to manage at work, needed somebody to be on them, needed the daily huddle in person, needed somebody to make sure they were still there and hadn't left early or whatever, that same person is having a hard time being somewhere else. I wrote an article that was on our Art to Coach podcast about people working multiple jobs. And there was an article that appeared in the Wall Street Journal that triggered an idea, like an aha. Wow, I wonder if this is a big deal. We actually found that there are multiple communities out there of people teaching people how to get contracts for multiple jobs, but actually not do any work. We actually found one person that we report 10 different jobs this person has as an IT person. He's making $1.5 million a year, expects to be fired from each position in about four months' time, doing just three hours a week of work on each one of the jobs. But he says, they won't all fire me at the same time, and there's always another one out there wanting my service. Now, I think that's scoundreldom. I think it's horrible. It's unethical. But we're seeing some of that happen. And so there's a whole new market out there. How do you know the people you have are working? And I would just say... What does that matter? If they deliver their work product and it's of a great quality, then that is enough. I, I have an employee right now in Texas, and she said, Sarah, when I'm taking the weekend off for, uh, to get out early for what we're going to have is Thanksgiving holiday next week. And I said, you know the great thing about this? I don't care at all. Just get your work done. Go do what you want, and I'll see you after the holidays. That's great. Yep. But, but that's because I've learned to demand to be rigid and strict. I can't have these great employees. I get good people because of the flexibility. I get them to be awesome. I definitely think there's something in this aspect of uh, of these new. I think in some ways you have to admire their uh, entrepreneurialism. There, uh, you know, um, uh, <laughs> admire the thief. Yeah, there'll be a new show about it. Probably a reality show. How well, many people I, I swindled? And, and I, su- I suppose the line is, but it, it, it's quite thin because. If somebody is setting an expectation and that expectation is being delivered, whether that be in less time than is deemed fit or they're outsourcing because they've got a team of people beneath them and they're, in theory, created their own subcontract model, as you say, if the work is being done, does it actually matter how the work is being done? And I wonder if we're just in the in, in an early stage of almost this uh, uh, kind of almost a mini revolution uh, where these people are just going to spring up, and actually, they are—they're seeing the aspect and the leverage of uh, subcontracting, the aspect of AI, leveraging the technology, and going right. Okay, look, you know, your uh, your thinking is not where it needs to be with the resources that are available. I'm going to take advantage of it. Um, yeah. I think it's. Uh, I think. That, well, I think if the exciting. contract is you're paying me for results, then I think it's highly ethical what they're doing. If you're yep. paying me for my hourly time, then it's not ethical and it is cheating. So the question is your contract. Yeah. I always like to value price and to get paid what the value is or a portion of the value I create. So I do think that there is a new era of free agency of work coming and we'll see more of that. Um, your faith is important to you. I, I just love, Before we finish, I'd love to just uh, see how that's impacted uh, you and uh, especially your business and coaching career? Oh, that's interesting. I don't normally talk about uh, my faith uh, when I'm there, but I'm I'm happy to share it. So I am a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. 
years ago as a 19 year old I was a missionary and he went off uh, for a period of time and and uh, taught and, and proselyted and so on in terms of my own work how it I mean we, one of the things that's unusual about our religion is that we don't uh, drink alcohol so for me I've learned that when I go off to a uh, reception I'll have a you know, say a ginger ale with cranberry with a little lime. And I fit right in, but, you know, that, I'll never get knocked out with that. Um, and I may have a few more calories that I need, but that's, that's that. I, um, it's interesting, BYU is a school that's associated with uh, our church, and it has the number one ranking uh, for the accounting program, primarily because of the ethics uh, people wanting people who uh, won't cheat, won't steal, and so on. And I'm not saying there's no scandals among us. I've, I, Unfortunately, sadly, I think that temptation can hit everyone, and some people don't measure up to their creation or their high expectation. But for me, you know, religion, I, I haven't really made it an issue. Um, perhaps I should, but I've just like, you are who you are, I'm who I am. And uh, how can I serve you? Now, I do mm. use principles of religion in one thing I do. To go back uh, with freedom to talk about this, as a Christian, I believe in Christ, and I believe in what he called the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes can be summarized down into three Bs. To be good, to do good, and to be good for something. And so I've actually taken that and harnessed that so the end of every one of my podcasts I tell people, look, you know, I'd like you to um, be good, do good, and to seek to uplift others. So in that respect, my desire to be a good person, to be honest, to help, to share, to care, to lift other people is definitely part of the business. But it's something that I don't go out and push. I'm not proselyting. I just think the world would be a better place if all of us were looking out for our neighbor and trying to represent and be authentic and to be good people. Thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that you answered that because for me, there's a knowing you like I do. Uh, your foundation is built on your faith, and and you've transpired and you've interpreted it, and you're taking it through uh, in into the work that you do. Um, so we're coming to the end. Uh, last couple of things from me. I'd love to know what are your one or two key killer coach questions that are you you know you kind of you know that you use them regularly. Oh, I try not to use the same question, but clearly uh, my son overheard me one time. He goes, your job is easy. I just put a record on. It sounds like you're asking the same questions to everybody. Okay, So I do, uh, obviously. That. So for me, um, the last question I typically ask is one I've heard you say before, and that is, you know, I've asked you a bunch of questions. What's the one question I haven't asked you that would tell me more about you? And I think mm -hmm. that one really pulls out a lot. Uh, a, another question I use is an intention question. And I, f I found somebody one time, and this was powerful, uh, I found somebody one time who was busy at being busy, but they weren't busy at the right things. Okay, mm -hmm. now that's my judgment saying that, but the reality is the business was flatlined for five years not doing it. And, and so I got called in, and it was a, it was a pre-engagement call, and the person said, you know, tell me about your coaching and all that. And I, I said, well, I do this, I do that. I, I coach the managing director of uh, Rio Tinto, a you know, $22 billion company. I do small ones, others. And, 
and I said, so here's what we would do. I kind of walked through the program and, and what we would do. And I said, can we get on your calendar? And what was so interesting is that for three months, we couldn't get on the calendar. And I'm like, for three months, I go, you've called me here because the business is hemorrhaging. And for three months, you, and what I found on the calendar was a whole bunch of uh, personal items, you know, um, going on trips, doing this, going fishing, doing, you know, whatever it was. And there was lots of things. And I said to him, I said, you know, I think it's odd. I coach somebody who arguably should be the busiest person of all. He's managing $22 billion, but he knows his schedule, and we have the ability to have something and hold that date because that's important to him. And yet for you, your business you know, is much smaller, and you can't seem to find a time uh, in 90 days. So I don't know if you're coachable. That kind of set it back. So let me just ask you these questions, though, on my way out. I'd like you to ponder in your busyness, what are you running to and what are you running from? And then I left. Now, he called me back very upset um, a day or two later. And he goes, first off, you're wrong. And I go, okay, what am I wrong about? He said, you know, you're wrong about me. I am coachable and all that. And no one talks to me the way you did. And you're going to be my coach. (laughs) I'd like okay, we have an agreement, we're going to work on things, and we're going to get time. And I began to coach this person, and I had one of the best experiences of my life in coaching. We ended up going around the globe together. We went to China to visit his factory. We went to um, Costa Rica to visit another factory. I helped him build a team, and we managed through a variety of cycles. And it was the most amazing thing that when we were in China, that he introduced me to all of his employees, I want you to meet my coach. And never before had I felt such an honor to be a coach, to have an impact in the life of somebody else, that when somebody mm-hmm. would present me to their company, that, that this is this high regard. Almost like, you know, there's this uh, British film called The King's Speech, where the king has his speech coach in the box because they have now become kind of like family. And so that was a great experience. But it all started with that, well, three questions. Are you coachable? What are you running to? What are you running from? Thank you. Last question. What's the one thing that we've not covered that you'd like to share? You haven't asked me um, what I think Frank and Fearless is. Uh, Okay. Seth, what do you think Frank and Fearless is? set up for your own podcast (laughs) i think that we hide a lot in trying to not approach people in ways that might unnerve them and i'm not trying saying we want to be a jerk but there is an absolute candor that is necessary in the boardroom to understand look there's something wrong here we need to focus on it and i'm I'm not placing blame but we have to be able to talk about uh, subjects this way So whether you call it frank and fearless or fierce conversations, we have to lean into things. And I think it's absolutely critical. And I think that's why I love the name of your podcast. Uh, By the way, there's a great cartoon about it out there as well on the same thing. But I love this intentionality is I want to talk to you straight. I want to talk to you transparent. And I'm going to share with you something that is important. And if you lean into it, it could be great. And I guess we'll end with a the quote of uh, Bosworth. My job is not to be your friend as a coach. 
My job is to help you as your chief agitator, to help you build and to see the vision that you could have and help you do that. So that's where I end up. Wise words. Uh, chief agitator. I absolutely love that. Uh, Sev, uh, pleasure as always. Um, what I love about our relationship is that uh, it's, the, it's the conversations that we have when we're together, but actually it's the conversations when we're just communicating via email and there's the you you write the way that you speak and there's this inquisitive wonderness and and sharing and caring so uh i want to thank you for not just being a guest on the podcast but also uh being um being my friend uh and somebody who uh is pushing me to become a better version of myself so uh so thank you um this has been the frank and fearless leadership podcast if you've enjoyed uh, which you must have done because you listened to the end. Uh, that's great. I appreciate you sharing uh, with just one other person that you feel would uh, take value from it. Um, and I look forward to you joining me next time. And whoever I speak to, whatever I speak to, uh, just in the flow. Uh, enjoy your day. Enjoy what you're doing. And I'll see you next time on the Frank and Fearless Leadership Podcast. Bye for now.